he says, I understand my old buddy Thomas Tom Sumter is in jail here. And he said, I'd like to, I'd like to, I was just in town, I'd like to see him. He said, yeah, okay, that's fine. Well, he has a hatchet hidden in, the, in his waistband, and he gives Thomas Sumter six guineas to bribe his way out, and in case that doesn't work, he gives him a hatchet, a tomahawk. Well, history does not record which of those two finally worked, but he got out of jail, and that's how he ended up in South Carolina. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. History Man is excited to have Dennis Chastain talking to us today. He is the Blue Wall Vice President of the Pickens County Historical Society, an interpretive naturalist and tour guide, and outdoor writer for the South Carolina Wildlife Magazine. You gave me a map, or you showed yeah. me a map, or presented a map prior to this recording. Right. And it's from the Cherokee Country, compiled by Stuart Hunter Road, 1937, mm -hmm. and then uh, revised and colored in 1999. And it has Indian towns from Creek Path, Alabama, all the way up to um, Stokoy and Kitawa yep. in the Eastern Cherokee uh, Reservation, just west of those areas, right there at the North Carolina-Tennessee border. Uh, how many of these towns on this map were, I mean, you had mentioned a bunch of them here in South Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, but didn't they coordinate with, uh, when they were going up and, and torching these towns, did they not coordinate with Rutherford yes. or yes. some North Carolina and then even some Virginia troops yes. during Both that same time? True. And did they, mm -hmm. did they take care of North Carolina and Virginia towns? Is that what they, or did they coordinate and actually go to these towns together? Yeah, the, what, what you said is exactly true. That was the plan. It didn't work out as planned because, you know, that's that's rough terrain up there. That, right. That's real mountains in eastern Tennessee and, and western. Not that we don't have real mountains in South Carolina. I can tell you, I've spent most of my adult life in the mountains of South Carolina. These are real mountains here. Uh, but they have 6,000-foot mountains in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee, and it's easy to get lost up there. And, and also, it's, it's, it's hard to calculate how much time you, how much progress you can make in a day's time. Right. And so Rutherford was coming in across uh, what's called now the Rutherford Trace or the Rutherford, Rutherford Path, Path in western North Carolina, which, believe it or not, most folks are familiar with Biltmore House. Mm -hmm. It went right through the Biltmore grounds. Exactly. That's one of the few preserved sections of the old Rutherford Trace or Rutherford Path. The plan was to meet up in, in eastern Tennessee and overhill towns. And you're right, Virginia also was to contribute some manpower to it too. None of those three factions ever met up at the appointed time. Right. Uh, but, but I would say of the three, Andrew Williamson, had already pretty much decimated the Cherokees by the time he got to the, the proposed meeting point. Uh, they All three did arrive at their destination. It was just at different times. I see. And it wasn't necessary. I see. It wasn't necessary. Well, it is interesting when you think about uh, the coordination of the British and how they were trying to uh, take over South Carolina, especially early in the war. And they were using that, as you said, a three or even a four-pronged mm -hmm. attack. Uh, <clears throat> using the Cherokee, using uh, the drovers as spies, <laughs> using the uh, slaves as spies, and then using the Navy, the British Navy to, uh, I mean, that takes some coordination. Yeah. That takes some yeah. coordination, and 
it all kind of fell apart. Yeah, yeah, certain aspects of it did. Uh, the slave rebellion definitely was never a factor. The Cherokees did what they were told to do. Right. They created tremendous havoc. I mean, like I say, all the way from the Packlet River over in Spartanburg down to nearly Columbia and then west to the, uh, on into Georgia. Um, so anyway, that, that part of the plan did work and it sure did divert people away from, you know, defending the colony. Well, it's interesting to me, we were talking right before the recording, you were talking about uh, there were parts of South Carolina, the colony, uh, that uh, did not have white folks in it, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, up until 1784, yeah. in, uh, which would be after the Revolutionary War, when, you know, after everything settled down. So thank you so much for sure. this. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, as we I want to ask you another question, we talked a little bit about... Um, uh, some of the heroes, you talked about Marion, you talked about Pickens, you talked about uh, uh, a little bit about Martin and, uh, and, and Sumter. Martin and Sumter and actually Ben Cleveland, uh, from what I've gathered, were childhood friends. And working with the Cherokee uh, was not unusual for them. I mean, they, oh, yeah. <laughs> ben Cleveland, who actually, after the war... Uh, he ended up in the in the northwest part of South Carolina mm-hmm. and had his right there, you know, just across the river from Georgia. Yeah. That's where he the, settled. On the Tugaloo River. The yeah. Tugaloo River, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Martin uh, Martin was instrumental in the Cherokees from the colonial standpoint and from mm-hmm. the young nation standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sumter. Sumter was, you talked about the Cherokee chiefs going over to England yeah. and being awed. Mm-hmm. Sumter was one of the escorts yes. of that. You know, I, I, I told you earlier, Eric, that I know a good story when I see one. Right. Thomas Sumter's story is a largely untold story. I think most people think he was a South Carolinian and he rose to the cause of liberty. And, and No, he grew up in Virginia. And he grew up in the same rural community. It's really a stretch to call it a community. It was a, a settlement of sorts on Pretty Creek near Charlottesville, Virginia, but out in the remote wilderness out there. And these three fellows that you mentioned, Joseph Martin, Benjamin Cleveland, and Thomas Sumter, grew up wild and rugged and fighting Cherokees and hunting and fishing and cockfighting and all this kind of stuff. You know, what boys do. <laughs> And, and, and Thomas Sumter joined the militia to fight Cherokees during the French and Indian War. And, uh, and he happened to be in Hampton Roads with Lieutenant Henry Timberlake, who was his commanding officer, just happened to be there. And Timberlake gets the assignment to go to the overhills of the Cherokees and bring three of their Cherokee chiefs to Hampton Roads to negotiate a peace treaty. The Cherokee Wars were over. This was 1763. They had ended in 1761, but never had conducted a treaty. And so they assigned Lieutenant Henry Timberlake and Thomas Sumter to go to the overhills of Tennessee, get these three Cherokee chiefs, and bring them back to Hampton Roads. Now, let me tell you something. In terms of a good story, you need to read the account of what it took for Sumter and Timberlake to get to the overhills. It was Timberlake's decision to go by water. Bad decision. It was right. wintertime. I think it was January. 
they they almost died. The, the, the dragging canoes up and around waterfalls, the, they got dumped twice, the canoe turned over. Thomas Sumter at one point saw a bear, they were about to starve to death, and saw a bear cross the river. He stood up in the canoe and fired the gun, misfired, and he fell out of the boat and dropped his only rifle down in the bottom. It was just awful. I don't know how they survived it. They finally made it there. They escort the Cherokees back to Hampton Roads, and and one of the Cherokee chiefs, Ostanaka, was walking down the hall to the building where they were going to meet with Governor Farquhar to you know sign this peace treaty, and he sees an oil painting of this is 1763, so it would have been King George the Third, their great father. You know they had they were there to sign allegiance to become British citizens and and be part of his, you know, under his domain. And he sees an oil painting, and he says, who is that? And somebody says, oh, that's King George III. And he says, oh, the great father, and he starts doing all this, paying homage to the great father. He said, I want to go across the big water and see King George. And they said, well, no, you know, you, you don't understand. That's a huge operation. It takes a month to, to get over there, and he's the king. You know, you can't just get an audience with the king. He said, I want to go see the king. And he just is so insistent. Finally, Governor Farquhar acquiesces, and he says, okay, Thomas Sumter and Lieutenant Henry Timberlake, and, a, and an interpreter, I think William Story was his name, he died in route. Uh, uh, they take him off over to London, and, and you know, that's, that's a story in itself. They were over there for over, almost a month. They took him around, showed him the British Navy, and put them in awe of the, of the British forces and all this, took them to the Globe Theater and other places to entertain them. They got quite drunk at one time, put on, put on quite a display. Anyway, mission accomplished. And so the, the Governor Farquhar had told Thomas Sumter and uh, Lieutenant Henry Timberlake that they said, well, you know, how much money are you going to give us for this trip? And they said, oh, well, you have to pay for it, and then we'll reimburse you when you get back. <laughs> when they get back, it's basically, uh, Henry who? Thomas, I don't believe I've ever met you. Just disavowed any knowledge of the arrangement or anything, and they had borrowed money uh, to pay for this trip. Thomas Sumter ended up in jail in debtor's prison up in Staunton, Virginia. And you're talking about his lifelong buddy, childhood boy, uh, childhood friend Joseph Martin. Joseph Martin was was by this time a pretty influential fellow. He eventually became a state legislator and, and other other things. But he had accumulated some wealth, and he heard that his old pal Thomas Sumter was in jail in Staunton, Virginia. And so he goes there and he tells the the sheriff and the jailer who he is, and they recognize his name. And he says. I understand my old buddy Thomas Tom Sumter is in jail here, and he said I'd like to. I like. To, I was just in town. I'd like to see him. He said, yeah, "Okay, that's fine." Well, he has a hatchet hidden in the, in his waistband, and he gives Thomas Sumter six guineas to bribe his way out. And in case that doesn't work, he gives him a hatchet. Tommy Hall. Well, history does not record which of those two finally worked, but he got out of jail, and that's how he ended up in South Carolina. Now, he had brought the Cherokees back, not back through Virginia, but back through Charleston. He came up the Cherokee path and really was just enamored with a place called Utah Springs. It's now under Lake Marion, but it must have been a beautiful place. The springs were bubbling up through basically limestone. It's called Cooper River Marl. It's, it's fossilized sea, 
seabed sediment. I've seen it. I've seen chunks of it. It's full of marine fossils. And I guess maybe the lush vegetation. He just fell in love with that place. And he said, I, I would like to live here and build me a store. And, and I'm only going to tell one more aspect of this story because it's incredible. He Before he, he has money to build his store, they do eventually reimburse him. So the Charleston government actually reimbursed him some money for the trip. But um, he goes and lives with the Cherokees for a year. And because when he takes them home, they invite him to stay. He, you can imagine, he's six foot tall and he's robust and he, he loves to wrestle with them. And he, he was kind of enthralled by the Cherokee culture. He learned a good bit of the language. He lived with them for a year. Then he goes back and, oh, and while he's living with the Cherokees, now you gotta understand that the French who occupied everything from New Orleans to Canada were constantly encroaching on the British territory trying to get the Cherokees to ally with them. You remember I told mm -hmm. you James Glenn famously recognized that the, the, our relationship with Cherokees were, was key to Carolina. Well, the French realized it too. They desperately wanted the alliance with the Cherokees and they were sending emissaries on almost a daily basis over offering them better trade conditions and you really want to side with us because we're powerful and all this. Well, while Thomas Sumter is up there living with the Cherokees in the overhills, he gets wind that in an adjacent village, because this is all the talk of the town, there is a French count who has come, a, you know, a, a French person of French nobility has come as an emissary to come over and try to persuade the Cherokees to side with the French. And Thomas Sumter says, I'm going to go capture that guy because there's a huge reward on him in Charleston, and they said, no, 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 you can't go because Oconestota, who's the great warrior of Chota, he was like the main warrior uh, of the Cherokees, is down at Fort Luce talking to the French right now, and if you capture this guy, they'll kill Oconestota or hold him as hostage. No, you can't do it. And Thomas Sumter says, he waits a day or two, and he says, I gotta, I gotta go get this guy. Yeah, I just gotta get him. I, it's my duty to get him. And they said, okay. We have a messenger, he says, that Oconestota has left and is on his way home. You're good to go. He goes over there and wrestles the guy to the ground. This is a French count now. He wrestles him to the ground. They fight in the mud and the blood and the beer, and the guy's apparently quite strong. He finally wrestled him to the ground, hogties him, hauls him off down to Fort Prince George, and tells the com commander who he is. You know, this is French, and they recognize his name. He's known to have been in, in that area of French territory. He takes him off down to Charleston, and, and with that reward money, Thomas Sumter bought the, the, the land. I have the plat for the land that he bought there at Utah Springs. It's the intersection of Nelson's Ford Road and the Cherokee Path that I have written so much about and do the slideshow on. And that's where he built his store. What a great story. And, and, and it did quite well, became fairly wealthy, married into money also, uh -huh. and settled into the you know the hills, high hills of Santee. And my wife Jane and I have been down to where his wife is buried and, and he, where he's buried um, in the high hills of Santee. It's off, kind of off the beaten path back in there. Been Tell me how Thomas Sumter got his name, the game guy. Okay, that, that is also, I think, a fascinating story because I think most accounts, and I've seen three or four who say that Lord Cornwallis just named him the Gamecock because he, he knew that he liked to fight chickens. Now remember, 
He grew up in the wilds of Virginia fighting chickens. That was a common sport. Well, Thomas Sumter had had several devastating losses, really embarrassing losses, along the Santee River and, and again up in the Congarees. And he decided that the reason he was losing was that militia, and this was true, it was a real limiting factor for the, for the Patriot cause, and that was that militia would sign up for a certain period of time, and when that time came... It was a contract to them. They'd get on their horse, or they'd turn tail and walk That's home. Right. That's go, right. It's over. Our contract is over. I want my money, and I'm out of here. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so Thomas Sumter said, what we really need is state troops. And he came up with this grandiose plan of how to raise money. And, and Francis, he, he wanted to pay the soldiers, the militia, in slaves that were confiscated mm -hmm. from Tories. Francis Marion thought it was abhorrent. Just, I'm not having anything to do with it. I don't even want to hear about it. Finally, John Rutledge, the president of the Continental Congress, said just to keep Thomas Sumter happy because uh, that was good policy at any time. He could be pretty boisterous. Said, okay, fine, but you're going to have to clothe them. You're going to have to come up with uniforms. you got to find guns for them. And you basically got to get all the supplies and all this. And, and so he, he's got to, he settles on these blue uniforms. And, you know, he's six foot tall and he's got these blue uniform with epaulets on. And he has... has heard of the Gillespie Rifles. Gillespie Rifles were made just, we live up at Table Rock State Park on Highway 11, which is only about eight miles from the North Carolina line, and the next town is Roswell. The Gillespie Rifles were made at a little foundry just outside of Roswell, the original ones, William Gillespie. The, the, his sons eventually built another foundry over on Mills River, and I cannot be certain which one Thomas Sumter went to, but he knew how to find the Gillespie's. He goes to the Gillespie's, and when he gets there at the foundry, they're out behind the foundry fighting chickens. It's <laughs> cockfighting. It was a popular sport in, in the colonial period. And, and so he's a great chicken fighter, and you know he talks the talk and talks the lingo and, and everything, and he's this impressive figure. And he walks up and tells them who he is, and like I say, he's an imposing figure. And his reputation preceded him. They had heard of his victories and what a, what a scrapper he was and everything. Well, the, the chicken fight was ongoing. There was a legendary chicken called the Blue Hen. It started in Delaware. There was this hen, blue, a literally blue game species of game chicken or variety of game chicken that was kind of a bluish cast. And all her progeny, all the roosters that came from her were the most vicious, had the most spirit, and the, and the greatest fighters of all. And so the blue hen was there. Well, they looked up at Thomas Sumter up there and said, he's one of the blue hen's boys, you know, because his reputation is big, he's vigorous, he's got a great track record. And so he tells the boys that he's putting together these state troops and he desperately needs men. Well, at least one of them, and I think it possibly it was two of them, they say that he is the gamecock. He's the, the, the progeny of the blue hen. And so the one or two of them that went back with him and, and became part of started calling him the Gamecock. And, and of course everybody in the, in the thing started calling him the Gamecock just as they did Francis Marion the Swamp Clock. That became his moniker. And so I'm, I'm buying that as, as a more likely story than Cornwallis just one day thought he'd call him a Gamecock. Yeah. <laughs> it's a that's better a, that's story. That's a good story. It's a good story. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What are some projects that you're working on or some things that you would love the listeners to take from this area when they come up in this area, uh, especially in terms of the Revolutionary War? Well, I, I'll tell you, this has been an ongoing project for me, and, and I think we're making some real progress right now because the SC250 committee, the committee that is coordinating the Sester Centennial of the Revolutionary War, I have talked with them a good bit about the, the fundamental importance of that Cherokee path that I've talked quite a bit about and I wrote an article in the Wildlife Magazine uh, about. Uh, and, and they have taken on as a goal to retrace the route of that. Now, my wife, Jane, and I, Jane was teaching during that period of time. She taught kindergarten for 34 years. And when I wrote that article, she was still teaching. So for four years before I actually wrote the article, we would go to wherever there, I could find that there was a known location. I'd find some documentation that somebody says, yeah, the Cherokee Path in Monk's Corner. It ran through so-and-so plantation. We would go and spend two or three nights in Monk's Corner, use libraries and everything. Long story short, over that four-year period, we probably found more than two dozen segments of the old ancient Cherokee path that had never been documented before. And so now those are data points. If, if I can tell the SC250 committee where those places are, they're data points on a map. You link them together and, you know, with satellite technology and everything, you put those. Now, we came up with a couple, three rules that you can tell whether it's it may be an old road, in fact, but it might not be the Cherokee Path. The Cherokee Path was an ancient footpath and, and started out with the Cherokees. And, and so it probably was built of local Indians, tribes, paths, you know, their local path to go, you know, seasonally to go harvest hickory nuts over in this area or this is a good place to go deer hunting. They had certain trails that were there. I think the Cherokee Path was probably worked out over generations, linking those local native tribes, the Santees and the Salutas just outside of Saluda, South Carolina, the Conestees and other Indian groups, most of which are extinct now, linking those local Indian trails together and staying on the west side of the Saluda, Congaree, Santee rivers, all the way down to King Street in Charleston literally was the the Cherokee Path went through the gate when Charleston was nothing but a palisaded city on the actually the Cooper River side of the of the Battery area down there on the extreme end of the peninsula. It was later broadened into a street and was known for a long period of time as the Broad Path. So if you read a reference to the Broad Path, that's the Cherokee Path in Charleston that had been widened. Uh, it, it was the Broad Path out to a point where there were taverns all along the way in that vicinity into Charleston City, and one of them was a 10-mile station or the 10-mile tavern, and it's about where what people call the Charleston Neck, where the peninsula necks down, it's where the, in the vicinity of where the airport is, that's where the Cherokee Path transcended into a big Broadway all down what is now King Street in Charleston. So that's my product is, and I said this all during the period of time that Jane and I were working on, the, on this, and ultimately my article is, I wish I could find some graduate student or something that would take this on because all this knowledge of where these vestigial segments are will be lost. You know, if at some point, you know, nobody lives forever and, and that's information will be gone. What we were finding is because, like I mentioned, 
This was an ancient footpath and persisted through the colonial period well before there was any earth moving equipment of any kind. There wasn't even mules and drag pans. So it had to follow the natural contour of the land. And what we found was if they got up on a ridge and it was generally heading in the direction they wanted to go, they'd stay on it. For example, there's a big ridge between Saluda, South Carolina and Lexington. By the way, the Cherokee path was right behind the garden center at Walmart in Lexington. Literally, right there behind the garden center. That road is still called Cherokee Road. Cherokee Road. They'd stay on that ridge for as long as it was hidden in the direction. The other thing is, remember I said that when they forded a creek, if it was a large creek, now small creeks you could get away with, with just crossing almost at random, but if it was a large stream, it had to have a hard bottom, which means they crossed at the shoal. So that's a point. You can go, and if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. Use those criteria and the data points that, that we can add to the, to the equation. I really believe you could create a map all the way across South Carolina for where it was. And that, that would be an important historical document because when you know where the old roads were, you know why things are where they are. 96, for example. Why, why did they build a fort at 96? It's because the Cherokee Path went right through there. And if you've ever been to 96 Battle Site, you know, the old Charleston Road. It was another route to Charleston, but it went through Orangeburg and crossed the Ashley River at Old Fort Dorchester, which meant you had a major river crossing, so it was not their preferred route. So the Cherokee Path, the Charleston Road, the Island Ford Road to cross the Saluda River, and then there was a road that left 96 and didn't go anywhere except Andrew Williamson's Whitehall Plantation. Stopped right there. So anyway, that's why 96 is where it was. So the Cherokee Path is is one of your big projects. Yes. That uh, yeah. That is, is very. It important. played such an important role in history that it would be a shame if that information that, that my wife and I have gleaned over these many years is just gone. It's just it's just lost. How would people get a hold of you? Uh, they're welcome to email me, and it's pretty straightforward because it's the first four letters of my name D for Dennis. C-H-A-S, D-C-H-A-S, 878 at AOL.com. Yeah, I know we're dinosaurs, but we still use AOL. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah.